Um, I'm Austin Ludwig. I'm the worship pastor here at Riverstone, and today I've got a message for us. And I believe, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so I believe, guys, uh, I really need Holy Spirit's help today. I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. This one was uh, didn't go down easy when I started, um, but I feel this is the word from the Lord, and so I just confess to you my need for Holy Spirit. And I'm going to start us off by praying and inviting Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come into the room to teach us everything we need to know that anything that I say or do um, that's not aligned with the spirit of truth would fall to the wayside. And today you would walk out with just truth. Yeah. So let's, let's invite him. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you, spirit of truth, to come and give us deep revelation today. Lord, we pray that uh, that you reveal new things to us, Lord, that what we know does not get in the way of what we need to know today, Lord. Holy Spirit, let your truth resonate in this place and then give us also the spirit of wisdom to then apply this truth to our lives, Jesus. <laughs> oh, we love you, Holy Spirit. Come and do what only you can do in your name, Jesus. Amen. of the population every year is affected by anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults age 18 and older. But between the ages of 13 and 18, this number actually increases, with 25 to 30 percent of this population being affected by anxiety disorder. Not only are the numbers increasing over the decades, but down to the age of 13 years old, statistically, the younger you are, the more likely you are to struggle with anxiety disorder. Half of the people who have anxiety disorder struggle with depression, and one of the top nine leading causes of disability in the U.S. is anxiety. And according to counselors, anxiety is the highest concern for counseling services today. Although the U.S. is the most developed country in the world, the richest country consuming more resource than any other nation, the U.S. is the country that is most affected by anxiety. The U.S. is 4.25% of the world population, but we make up over 15% of the global population for anxiety disorder. A 2009 report by the U.S. Institute of Medicine called on the nation to make prevention of mental and behavioral disorders a priority. Yet, regarding anxiety and depression, we have only seen an increase and also the rates of increase grow as well. From 2019 to 2020, there was a 10% increase in the use of anxiety medication, but that number spiked at an all-time high during the pandemic at a 30% increase. Although doctors claim that drugs prescribed help manage symptoms, they do assert that the drugs do not cure anxiety. Therapy, prescription, medication, and various forms of treatment has significantly increased since 1990, but over the 30 years, the numbers of those negatively affected by anxiety have not dropped but have increased. We've seen a very large increase in various forms of treatment, but the prevalence of anxiety has continued to increase all the more. Now, if we're already a bit uncomfortable or unsettled or maybe even offended um, by this somber opening, I hope that you're not offended with me uh, personally. I've so far only shared facts and statistics. I haven't shared any of my beliefs or opinions. Um, but don't worry, don't lose hope. There's still lots of time in the message to be offended with me personally. I'll give you the chance, so don't worry. (laughs) But jokes aside, I think in some way or another, upon reading these statistics, we should be unsettled. We should be off-put. We should be some ways offended by these jarring numbers. 
at the beginning of this year, I began to pray and I said, Lord, will you give us vision? What is it you want to say, God? What are you doing? And not just what are the specific things you want to do, but what is the overarching thing prophetically? And I felt the Lord speak this. I felt him clearly say, there are cultural giants at your doorstep. What are you going to do about it? I was like, whoa, okay, Lord, well, what do you mean by cultural giants? And I feel the Lord is saying that not just in the world, but now making their way into the church, there are these things in our culture that are massively impacting our way of life. Culture is defined as way of life or ways of living. And there are these giants, these things that are negatively impacting our culture clearly on a massive scale. I took into account the past two years and I've watched many loved ones tormented by anxiety. And undeniably, we as the human race, we've walked through two years of heightened anxiety and a more difficult time. We in some way have all walked together through this wilderness season. But I look at these statistics and my heart breaks specifically for my generation and the ones after me. And not just my generation, but my generation here in the US because we are the ones being most affected by this. So today I'm telling you that this is not uh, business or my duty as a pastor, but this is personal for me. I believe it's time for men and women in my generation to stand up and to say, not here, not on my watch. We are going to step into believing that this number can decline, dissipate. As I read in our research, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, total confession moment. It's like, I started getting anxiety about teaching a sermon on anxiety. I was like, literally, I was anxious about this. And I had to get a reset from the Lord because as I began to read and, and, and do this research, this giant of anxiety from these numbers, it began to get bigger and bigger and more gigantic. But of course, as I prayed and I spent time with the Lord and I dove into the truth of his word, the, the giant of anxiety got smaller and smaller and smaller. Because how many of you know every time we uh, see a giant in front of us, God is speaking a better word? Whenever we see a giant that's in front of us, God is saying, come up here, I'm gonna give you a higher perspective. In Ephesians 2, it says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus tells us, he says, I'm in you, you're in me. Jesus is seated by the right hand of the Father in the heavenly place, and we are actually seated there with him. This is what this verse tells us. So from that place, when we look down, we see that every giant is microscopic. God is saying, come up here to this elevated perspective. And the invitation today is the Lord is saying, do you see as I see? In a complete moment of humility, I recognize that one single message will not navigate the complexity of this topic. And I discovered this when I prepared, like I got into it and immediately I was just like, this is not, I'm not even scratching the surface. And so um, my desire is to at some point teach part two on this message. Um, and so I've split it up into two parts, but even that may not do it complete justice. And for some of you today, this message is gonna be too much. For some of you, it's gonna be not enough. But what I wanna ask from you is grace. I wanna ask for openness and a spirit of offense to be completely let go of today. I recognize in humility, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a neurologist. And although I'm not those things, what I am is a disciple of Jesus who believes every single word he said is true. I believe that he is the resurrected Christ who came and lived a perfect life, died and was resurrected, the son of God, 
And that means that he is all authority on every single topic that there is. I don't approach the word of God and say, I wanna pick bits and pieces like it's a menu I can pick and choose from, but I approach it and say, everything you said is true. I wanna feast on every part of what you said, Jesus, because you speak only truth from a good place and your nature is love and goodness. So today, know that this is not an anti-doctor message. It's not anti-therapy, anti-medication message at all, but it is a pro-kingdom message. It is a pro-discipleship message, and it is a pro-Jesus message. And friends, today I want to tell you it is indisputable that Jesus tells us that he has something to say about anxiety. It's indisputable that Jesus says many things about anxiety, worry, and fear. So today I hope not to offer you just my personal convictions, but I hope to offer you the way of Christ, the better way that he offers us. In a moment of personal repentance, I, I look back and I recognize not just as a pastor, but as a friend, where I have drastically failed when approaching this conversation of anxiety before. And according to these statistics, I I recognize that there are many of you probably in this room today who are deeply wrestling with anxiety or you know and love somebody who is deeply rest, wrestling with anxiety. And I wanna say to you that if your experience has ever been dismissed, minimized or overlooked by somebody in church leadership, whether it's here or at another church, I wanna say to you today, I'm very sorry that this has happened and that you are a person who is worthy of honor. This message today is not to condemn anyone or to lead anyone into a place of shame, but it actually is an invitation out of it. And I know this is a sensitive subject. Unfortunately, there are a lot of sensitive subjects growing in sensitivity in our culture today. People say, you can't touch that, you can't talk about it. Or if you do talk about it, you can only talk about it within the parameters. You can only talk about it within the box that we give you. There's a lot of sensitive subjects, but things like sanctity of life, sexuality, family dynamics and structure, all of these things are becoming sensitive topics in society today. But we as a church, I believe, should be leading the conversations on these subjects. We should not withdraw ourselves from fear of man. When a subject is highly sensitive, it is actually pointing to the fact that there is a gaping wound that needs healing. A wound that people may say, don't touch that because it causes pain. But we believe that the way of Jesus is the only thing that can bring healing and wholeness to what that pain is pointing to. So today, my prayer is that this conversation is either another step in your healing and wholeness journey or that it might be the first step for you. If I was to ask each of you to define anxiety for me, I think you'd probably give me a, a different definition from every single one of you based off personal experience, based off things learned or observed. Um, and like I said, it's a very complex topic. So I wanna make sure we start on the same page today and define anxiety. When we think of anxiety, we think of worry, we think of stress, these things come. And, and when I was preparing for this message, I was getting super hyper-focused on needing to like define all these things very differently. Worry, stress, and anxiety, knowing like they're, they're all different. But the more I studied, the more I researched, the more I discovered that they are also intertwined and they're actually used to define one another. Stress is the physiological side of anxiety. Something we all should experience in some capacity is stress, okay? This is a natural and immediate response to a threat or danger. It's when your limbic system fires up and, and releases cortisol and adrenaline and says, there is a threat happening. It's when you're maybe walking by some bushes late at night and you hear something rustle in the bushes 
and before you can think about it, you're running the other direction. Or it's when you pull up to your driveway and you're walking in the house and you walk through a spider web and all of a sudden you're doing karate moves you didn't know that you even had. It's like my wife, we've actually been married for, for a year and a half. And um, the other day I was just sitting at, at the breakfast bar in our house and she comes around the corner. She goes, ah, freaks out. And I'm like, hello, I, I live here. Like I've been living here for a year. We've been living together for a year and a half. Like that is stress. <laughs> These are moments of acute stress, but there's also something called chronic stress. And this is a prolonged period where we're exposed to high levels and amounts of stress that actually can have drastic and lasting results. And I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about that today, but hopefully to get into that next time I jump into this topic of anxiety. So we see stress is the physiological side. Worry is the cognitive side of anxiety. It is the mental battle, as we know, where we all theorize these negative scenarios of what could be happening right now or what might happen in the future. And if you're like me, this is kind of the temptation and the difficulty. I'm, I'm a strategic thinker, like my number one strength finder or strength on Gallup strength finders is strategic thinking. So a lot of times I'll be you know, playing chess with the pieces of the future and you know, just kind of trying to figure out what'll come and, and the Holy Spirit will have to show up and I'll say, hey buddy, like, this is not constructive. This is, you're actually going to a negative place. This is pessimistic. This is not strategic thinking. This is worrying. And so I'll have to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I repent. And I'll have to just detach myself from that train of thought. So we see here that worry is this cognitive side of anxiety. And like I said, all of these definitions are intertwined. Like you're probably gonna have a hard time finding um, a definition on stress that doesn't have the word worry in the definition. Um, I couldn't personally find a definition on the word anxiety without finding the word worry in the definition of anxiety. But what we see is that it is a culmination of the two, worry and stress. Anxiety is a combination of the physiological and the cognitive side. The American Psychological Association defines anxiety as this, quote, Anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. People with anxiety disorders usually have recurring intrusive thoughts or concerns, end quote. Many professionals define anxiety not just as our body and our mind's reaction to a false alarm, but it is our body and mind's reaction when there is no alarm at all. It's when our amygdala is triggered and it starts firing, causing these physical and mental reactions but actually we're not able to pinpoint what triggered us. Over time, we don't know what the threat is at all, but our brain is telling us that there is a threat. It's when we run from the bushes, but there's no predator in the bushes, let alone is there a sound in the bushes. It's when we punch the air walking to our front door, but there's no spider web, there's no web at all. And I know you might say, okay, this silly example, Austin, does not even come close to defining my anxiety. You might be someone who, lies awake late at night feeling overwhelmed with thoughts and you can't turn them off. Or you might be somebody who walks into a room full of people in a social setting and your heart rate increases and you cannot explain why. You might be somebody who's driving down the road and all of a sudden you get shortness of breath as these thoughts of impending doom come over you and you cannot explain it. You say, I can't trace my anxiety to an origin, to a thought or a moment. You can't explain it and you feel like nobody understands you because you don't even understand you, and in that place, you feel deeply alone. In an attempt to cure this loneliness, I think that we've begun to talk about anxiety in our pop culture a lot. If you've been tuning in the past three to four years, this has kind of 
come to the surface, this conversation in our pop culture. And I think it's kind of been an attempt to cure this loneliness. Like we see that other people are suffering and in some twisted sense, we feel like we're less alone because there's others suffering as well. But we may feel less alone knowing that we aren't suffering alone, but the data shows that we are still deeply suffering and continuing to suffer. So regardless of the semantics on worry and stress and the two combined to produce what we call anxiety, I think on a fundamental level, we have to admit that all of it, anxiety, worry, and stress in some ways are manifestations of fear. Fear is defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause us pain or is a threat. I think that touches on every single one of those. It might be fear of failure, fear of being uh, or not being seen, fear of not being seen, fear of what the future holds, fear of not having enough, fear that what happened to you might happen to you again, deep fear of what other people think of you. The list goes on and on and on. But today I want to tell you there's good news because God has a pretty long list as well. Actually, in the Bible, it says, fear not or do not be afraid in some capacity 365 times. That's one time for every single day of the year. Now, I don't want to mislead you. There's not 365 verses, but it does say it 365 times. And we see that scripture talks about worry, anxiety, and fear. And again, I believe we should be leading the conversations in our culture on these topics if that is the case. That is a mandate from heaven saying, you're meant to be a part of this conversation in some way. I think the apostle John provides us one of the best perspectives on fear because he actually also provides us one of the best perspectives on love. We call John the apostle, John the beloved, because throughout the gospel he writes, he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loves. And a lot of times we give John a little bit of flack as if he's saying this arrogantly, like I'm the disciple who Jesus loves. Uh, But I actually think that John had this deep revelation that he was loved by Christ. And we see it in the way that he writes his gospel and later on the other epistles that he writes as well. He refers to himself six times as the disciple whom Jesus loves. And my favorite verse regarding fear is in 1 John, which is an incredible letter. I would encourage us all to go read it, just all about love. 1 John 14 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This verse tells us that our fear is actually due to a love deficiency. Our fear is present because somewhere in us, love is absent. And by absent, I mean it's a space that we failed to receive the deeper love revelation that's at hand. Because if we did fully receive this revelation, if love were fully present, then fear would not be. Because this verse tells us that fear is driven out by perfect love. Fear cannot survive in the same space when love is present. If you're like me, you may have heard growing up that faith is the opposite of fear. Faith over fear became this Kichi slogan that we put on t-shirts. And there's no question, guys, that, that faith is significant. To say faith is significant is, is probably an understatement as a Christian. Faith is so important, I can't even begin to articulate. But my assertion is that when we're experiencing anxiety, worry, or in other words, fear, if we jump straight 
to a conversation about faith, we are missing the most important step. And that, friends, is the reception of love. If someone is, is, in, is right in front of you suffering from a severe panic attack, overwhelmed by anxiety and fear, feeling completely helpless, what they don't need to hear is, come on, man, muster up some faith. You can get past this. No, what they need to know is that they are deeply loved. Perfect love casts out fear. And when talking about faith, we must recognize that faith is a byproduct of first knowing that we are loved. Faith is defined as complete trust or confidence in something, or in our case, someone. But we are incapable of putting our trust completely in anybody if we don't believe that that person fully loves us first. And I believe that we sometimes fail to trust God because we are actually in a great need of a deeper love revelation. Faith and belief have no ground to stand on if we do not first know that we are loved. Probably the most memorized verse in the world of the church is the verse of salvation. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And again, this is the disciple who Jesus loves. This is John. He's writing to us in a way that he's communicating something. He wants us to see that the believing and the faith part of John 3.16 only come after the most important statement, which is, for God so loved. It's for God so loved you, for God so loved me. And then it goes, and whoever believes. But first, it's about his love. The love revelation comes before the belief manifestation and the reception of love comes before the expression of faith. Now we do have a message of salvation contingent upon our belief, contingent on our faith, but we cannot forget that our faith and our belief is first built and is contingent upon his love. If we don't first have the revelation that God loves us, we are not capable of truly believing. Paul makes a point of this. He writes to the Corinthians at the end of his first letter. He says that the three things that remain is faith, hope, and love. He's talking about faith and hope as well. But he makes a point to tell us that the greatest of these is love. The most important is love. Because without love, faith falls apart. Without love, hope crumbles. We don't know how to have faith, let alone hope for the future or our present circumstances, if we have not fully accepted that God deeply loves us. What is there to hope for, guys, if, if, if we don't believe that there is a God who's working all things together for our good because he loves us? What is there to believe for and have faith for if we are not seeing our future through the eyes of a loving father who says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you because I love you. So it is about receiving our love. And my belief today is that we can slay the anxiety giant the fear giant in our life with the reception of this perfect love. And it is about the reception. It is about our receiving because we have a loving father and a God who has given us everything. He went all in. He has given us all things. He has given us access completely to his love. Paul writes in Romans 8 that if he would give his son up, his only begotten son, if he gave up Christ, will he not give us all things, not some things. Will he not give us all things? Again, John three sixteen. 
It's his nature. He loved us, so he gave. He has given us all things. The spirit is given without measure. It also says that it's given without measure in his word. So we see that God has freely given us everything we need. When I read the word, guys, I read about a God who went all in, who held nothing back. So this must mean that our fear remains because we still have more love to receive. This year, I've been really working on pivoting this ideology around the word more. More is a word that we see in our songs, in our, we say it in our prayers. You know, God, more of your love, more of your spirit, more of your favor, more of your presence, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that the word more is, is, is bad by any means. But when I read and I see about, see the word says that there's a God who went all in, who's given us everything. I, I, I wanna say to myself and pivot my thinking. And whenever I say we're seeing the word more now, deeply I want it to resonate that I'm saying, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would increase my capacity to receive more because you've freely given to me. I've said it before, but God is kind of like the ocean. It's, it's endless. It's got billions and billions of gallons of water and we can all walk up to the shoreline, but the amount of water that we walk away with is actually dependent upon the kind of container that we show up with. If we show up with one cup, we'll walk away with one cup of water. If we show up with a 10 gallon container, then we get to walk away with 10 gallons of water. So God is offering us this endless love. And if love is the cure for fear, perfect love, and God is freely given this without measure, then I guess the question is, okay, God, what can we do to increase our capacity for love, to receive this love? And I think um, the answer is all throughout the word. You're gonna find that answer all throughout the word. But really, I think on a fundamental level, the answer is and has always been and will always be that, that discipleship is what increases our capacity for love. At Riverstone Collective, our 20s and 30s uh, gathering this week, we talked about discipleship and we had conversations and we discussed spiritual disciplines and the things we can do to help shape our faith and our walk with the Lord. But as we talked about these things, I was reminded again that discipleship is not just these things that you can do for God, but discipleship is actually a way of life and a culture that we are invited into to follow Jesus that truly positions us to receive God's love. Discipleship is living out a culture that leads to the abundant life that Jesus promises us. But there, there is a starting place as there is with anything. There is an entry point to this abundant life. There is a square one to discipleship, or in other words, there is a first step to this culture of receiving love when we follow Jesus. And Tom talked about it last week when he touched on uh, the, the point of surrender and discipleship, that if we aren't surrendered to God fully, that discipleship doesn't work. That step one is surrender when we become disciples. And in the gospels, we see very clearly that this invitation of discipleship begins with surrender. And I believe that that surrender happens through our repentance. Repentance is the first step to discipleship and is square one for us today. So many of us have learned the message of repentance as, have you heard about hell? It's really bad, so you might wanna repent. Or repent or perish, or beware of hell, you better repent. And, and I actually think a better message is what Jesus taught us, which is repentance wasn't just meant to be about avoidance of hell, 
but repentance was an invitation to heaven. John the Baptist, when he shows up before Jesus starts his ministry, what does he say? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, not repent because hell is really bad. And then Jesus, when he starts his ministry, the first thing he starts to preach is also repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is an invitation into heaven. But Jesus didn't come just to get you into heaven. He came to get heaven inside of you. And heaven is not just a place, but heaven is a quality of life. Heaven is a state of mind. And we as the church are meant to partner with the Lord's prayer, which is on earth as it is in heaven. But you cannot establish heaven around you if you don't have heaven inside of you first. You can't give what you don't have. We can't address the chaos that's occurring in the world if we have chaos inside of us. So Jesus says that I've come to get heaven inside of you. And repentance is what unlocks the door for us to be filled with this heaven. Now you might be thinking, we've kind of derailed at this point. I thought we were talking about anxiety. Why are we talking about repentance? Why are, you know, if we're talking about discipleship, well, are we gonna talk about the disciplines, you know, the important things, prayer, fasting, and, and reading the word? And, and yes, uh, all of those things are important and I hope to touch on them in part two. But the truth is I started out this message and I felt the Lord was like, and I did, I did it. I, I, I wrote down all of the things that you do in discipleship. And I felt the Lord was like, great, you've got step two. You've got part two. Now what? And I was like, what? Didn't you know how much time I spent on this, God? How much time I prayed about this? And then I was like, that's kind of inconsiderate. But he said, no, you've got to get step number one. We have to get the foundations down. So the Lord had me hit the brakes and reminding me, guys, that discipleship is about beloved identity. And repentance is what restores us to this place of beloved identity that we like the apostle John would have this deep revelation inside of us knowing that we are the disciple who Jesus loves. And that is the revelation that enables us to actually walk discipleship out. Jesus came and he flipped the kingdom upside down and he says, I care about not just what you do, but what happens on the inside of you. He came to correct our identity in the way that we think, not just what we do or how we do it, but he came to correct what's on the inside so that we could actually make a difference on the outside. Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup and the outside will also be clean. And he came to get heaven inside of us. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's holding it out to us. And for us to reach out and grab it, we just have to repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and repentance is accepting this invitation. The Greek definition of the word repent in the Bible is metanoia. And metanoia simply means to change one's mind to change one's mind. So repentance is not just about doing something wrong and then feeling sorry about it and saying, God, I'm sorry. But repentance is to say, God, I've been thinking wrong. Will you come? Will you come and change my mind? And I know if we we talk about repentance, then of course we need to talk about sin. But sin in the Bible is defined simply as missing the mark. Or in other words, wrong thinking. So repentance is saying, my fear, my worry, my anxiety has been missing the mark. Lord, I repent. Will you come and change my mind? So Austin, are you saying that fear, worry, and anxiety is a sin? Well, if sin is wrong thinking or missing the mark, then I am. Yes. Austin, are you saying that that I should repent for fear, for worry, for anxiety? 
Well, if worry and fear is wrong thinking and missing the mark, and repentance is inviting God to change our mind, to change our wrong thinking, then yes, I am. The Western church at times has taught a peculiar theology on sin. We've watered down scripture and offered it to people in a way that, that, that as if like you don't act on the internal thoughts, desires, and emotions that you have, that it's not sin as long as you don't act on it. But missing the mark begins internally, and Jesus came to make this very clear to us. I think that is a staple point in the message of the gospel is what happens on the inside of you matters. We sometimes think that Christ lowered the standard with the greasy grace messages that we preach sometimes. But Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart, then you have already committed murder. He tells us, if you have lust, then you've already committed adultery. To me, that doesn't sound like he's lowering the standard. To me, that doesn't sound like he's not saying what happens inside of us is not a form of sin or missing the mark or wrong thinking. Jesus commands us not to worry many times in the gospel. He commands us not to fear and not to doubt. And these are not suggestions. These are commandments, friends. But I believe that disobeying any command Jesus gives us in some form or fashion is sin or missing the mark, wrong thinking. Now, I do want to clarify being concerned for something or someone that matters to you is not a sin. When something threatens what we value, it is natural to have an emotional response. And so I'm not saying that all of your emotions and your thoughts are sinful in that way. But I am saying that, that where sin begins is when that emotional reaction or response leads us down a road of wrong thinking. A thinking that believes the things or the people that we value are where we get our value from. When Jesus tells us not to worry and to not be afraid, it's actually, again, about beloved identity. It's actually, again, coming back to the reception of love and knowing our value. Our sin is missing the mark in placing our value on things or people. And sin is having wrong thinking that tells us that we are not loved enough. Sin is failing to believe that everything that matters to us is taken care of because if it matters to us, it matters to God because you matter to God. The good news is that Jesus never commands anything of us that he's not given us his grace and his complete power to fulfill and to accomplish. In Matthew 6, when Jesus tells us not to worry, the remedy he provides us is that, again, we are valued and deeply loved. Jesus says, look at the lilies, look at the birds of the sky. I feed them, I clothe them, and I value them but don't you know I value you so much more? Don't you know that you are taken care of? This is the remedy for your worry. And then in Matthew 10, when he tells us to not be afraid, the remedy again is knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're valued. He says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Even the hairs on your head have been counted. Don't be afraid, therefore, you are worth more than many sparrows. These commandments to not fear and to not worry are about cor correcting our love deficiency. And I don't know about you, but I've broken these commandments not to fear and not to worry many times. I've broken them this week without a doubt. And although the standard has been raised, this new covenant, this better covenant, that standard is actually easier to reach than ever before. Because through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it's as simply as turning and saying, God, I repent, and we are restored back to this place 
of our beloved identity, reminding ourselves of who we truly are. Romans 2 says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So Jesus isn't saying to us, you're a failure. I thought I told you not to worry. I told you not to be afraid. We've been here before over and over again. I'm just getting tired of this. I've told you. No, this is not his tone at all. His tone is covered in love. It's covered in kindness. It sounds more like, you are so loved. You're my beloved. So you don't have to fear because I am with you. You don't have to worry because I will take care of you. Look at the lilies, consider the ravens they're taking care of, but don't you know that I care for you so much more? You're the one that I made in my image. You're the apple of my eye. You are my beloved. When I look at you, I see no blemish, but I only see my son who is perfect and who I love. This is my posture towards you. And our only response that we can give to this kindness is, God, I had it wrong. I've been missing the mark. I've been thinking wrong. Will you come and change my mind? I repent. Repentance swings wide the heavenly doors and invites us to let love change our wrong thinking and it restores us back to beloved identity. And I wanna say this before we go on. I know that there's probably many of you in this room who have experienced unspeakable trauma, maybe trauma that you've never even talked to somebody about. And if you know me and my story, I walked through a lot of trauma as a child and it took me a long time to get to this place where I could could admit to myself that there was a season where I had severe PTSD that manifested itself in many different ways. And I wanna say to those who've experienced trauma that what happened to you is not your fault. You should not suffer consequences that were never yours to carry. Your heart and mind and hope for the future should not suffer because of somebody else's mistakes. And I believe that God can change your heart, change your mind and restore you to a place of beloved identity because he did it with me. And it may have taken some time where I had to wake up every day and say, God, come and change my mind. But he did, and he brought back beloved identity. So I wanna invite the, the ministry teams to come up and the, and the worship team to come up as I kind of bring this to a close. I hope that today in this message, if, if I can be uh, accused of anything that it's, that it's, I'm, I'm making God out to be better than he is, but the truth is, is we can't exaggerate the goodness of God. John 16, eight says that the Holy Spirit not just convicts us of our sin, but Holy Spirit convicts us of our righteousness, convicts us of our right standing with God, which means that conviction is a good thing. And again, this invitation today is, is an invitation into conviction, not condemnation. This is not a message to condemn anyone, but to remind us and convict us of our right standing with God who is agape love. Unfortunately, many of us, we are in an abusive relationship with ourselves. We give way to fear. And like we read in 1 John, fear gives way to punishment. Fear only has to do with punishment. And we fall victim to this fear. And through worry and anxiety, we start condemning ourselves to worst case scenarios that look nothing like what God has in mind. Because the God I know 
says he has plans to prosper us, not to harm us. He says he has good things for us. It is in his nature. And he wants to invite us out of condemning ourselves. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message to invite you to stop condemning yourself. So conviction is a good thing and it restores us back to our rightful place in God's love. And I want to read what Paul says about this love. In Romans 8, it says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Responding to conviction today through repentance is to say to fear, my rightful place is seated in Christ in the heavenly places. Repentance is to be elevated back to the heavenly place of perfect love that drives out fear. And from this this heavenly place where we're seated with Christ, Jesus says, I'm in you, you're in me, and I'm in the Father. He's seated with the Father. We are with him in this heavenly place. In this heavenly place of perfect love, the giant of fear, the giant of anxiety is a giant no more. Will you stand with me today? Today is a day for newness, a day for refreshing, a day for restoration of beloved identity. And as I said, this, there's, there's a lot more to discuss regarding anxiety, but this is the foundation. This is step one. And sometimes the first step can be the most difficult step, but the first step is the most important step. Ships are safe when they're docked in a harbor, but that's not what ships were made for. Ships were made to sail. And so sometimes that first step is the hardest step to take, but the invitation is to take that step today. Today is a call to repentance, a call to the bride of Christ to come and have her mind changed. Beloved, will you answer this call today? People think repentance is about shame and somehow through our religious teachings or or whatever it might've been over the years as the church, you've created a shame association with repentance. But I need to tell you today that repentance is the one thing that is going to pull you out of a place of shame. So just receive this word today. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Or in other words, Ask God to change your mind and turn to him so that your wrong thinking may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Amen. Come and receive prayer today for whatever it might be. If you feel in some way, some form or fashion, it's probably all of us that you have some sort of wrong thinking. There's an invitation today to invite God to change that wrong thinking and let a season of refreshing begin. Come up, get prayer.